Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And you know, when the calendar rolled over from 2020 into 2021, I really didn't anticipate my first week of work here in virtual legality having so many comments on the political scene. But unfortunately, here we are. If you aren't interested in this and you're just interested in the business and law of pop culture, video games, music, movies, and television, I recommend going to the next video in this series, which hopefully won't be covering this same ground. But there is enough going on that I'm seeing on my social media that people are DMing me about in respect of very unusual constitutional questions that I thought it was a good idea to talk over all of them with you today. Now, before we get started, this is, of course, a political tinderbox. There are people on either side of the political spectrum here in the United States that will feel very strongly about the actual implications of what we are going to talk about today. But I don't want to get sucked into a political morass on these topics, even though the nature of the question is in and of itself political. So I would ask everybody that's watching this video or listening to this as a podcast as a thought experiment, just so that we can have the legal discussion as unbiasedly and with a single perspective as possible to just pretend that this relates to someone that is not a present politician, not even maybe a politician at all. Someone that is just the worst possible person that you can think of for any light or stupid reason. I have my own thoughts. You might have yours, but just pretend that what we're talking about is not somebody that is actually in office right now and that these questions are not discussing the political landscape in your country or elsewhere if you're not in the United States as of right this second. I think it will help the conversation, even though you will be hearing the word Trump a lot in this video. So let's start off. First, we have a tweet from Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders here, one of the Democratic nominees for president. He's been a nominee a lot. And he says a number of administration officials are resigning in protest to Trump's horrific acts of sedition yesterday. Not good enough. The vice president and cabinet members must invoke the 25th Amendment now and remove Trump from office before he incites more violence and chaos. And this is the kind of world we're living in in the United States. Now, if you haven't heard of the 25th Amendment before, or if you've just been engaged in Twitter conversations on the topic, you might have a little bit of history with it if you followed United States media at all for the last 20 years. The 25th Amendment is an oddball one, and odd enough that dramas in our country have used it quite frequently to create a little... Uh, noise around the presidency and especially the vice presidency. Here you see on the popular show 24 featuring Kiefer Sutherland, them inaugurating under the 25th Amendment, uh, Charles Widmore from Lost as the new president of the United States. But those dramas might have led you a little bit astray. The 25th Amendment isn't really about disagreements on policy, on looking at the presidency and saying, this isn't right, and I want to remove you and put the vice president in his place. We see here the actual prologue on the Cornell Law School website describing the 25th Amendment as follows. The 25th Amendment proposed by Congress and ratified by the states in the aftermath of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy provides the procedures for replacing the president or vice president in the event of death, removal, 
resignation or incapacitation. The Watergate scandal of the 1970s saw the application of these procedures first when Gerald Ford replaced Spiro Agnew as vice president, and then when he replaced Richard Nixon as president. And then when Nelson Rockefeller filed, filled the resulting vacancy to become the vice president. So this is designed to assure a kind of continuous elevation of the vice presidency to fill those vacancies. It isn't about political disagreement. And it's a very complicated section of the Constitution. The Constitution, if you've listened to virtual legality before, if you've talked on these issues with us, you know, is generally written fairly simply, and that can provide ambiguities. In fact, we'll see some later in this video, but this is written to be very technical and precise. And so I do think a lot of people are misunderstanding what would even happen in the application here. So let's go through it. Section four, whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. That's a lot of words, right? But there's a couple of things that we can pull out from the very start. First, you need two separate in entities, in the one case, an individual, in the other case, a body of people to agree to this course of action. You need the vice president and a majority of the cabinet, effectively, or other body that Congress may by law provide. Now, as I've said, the 25th Amendment hasn't been used very often. This section has never been used, and Congress has not, as far as I know, put forward any law that would put a separate body in the place of the principal officers of the executive departments for purposes of this section. So you need vice president and a majority of the principal officers of the executive departments to do any of this. And what do they need to say to the various houses of Congress? They need to tell them that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. Generally, that he's dead or he's in a coma or yes, he's insane and not thinking logically, that he's unable Note from a legal perspective, however, that this does not mean unwilling. You can feel however you want to feel about whoever you are imagining in your head right now. It probably doesn't mean that they are actually functionally legally unable to do what you would have them do, just perhaps that they are unwilling to do those very things. So you already have a legal problem just by putting this forward because you have to be able to say that the person in question is unable to do what you think they should be doing. After you have submitted that, though, you're the vice president of the United States, you get the cabinet together, you submit it to them, you are immediately the acting president just from the original submission. Then we get some kind of counter punches. Thereafter, when the president transmits to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives, his written declaration that, no, 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 I'm not unable, no inability exists, he shall resume the powers and duties of his office. That seems simple enough, right? But the sentence isn't over unless the vice president and a majority of the principal officers, probably the same two groups, transmit within four days their written declaration that the president is still unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. Definitions probably could have been used here by a good contract attorney to shorten this up a bit. But the point is what appears to happen here, and again, this hasn't gone through the courts or anything like that, so you're getting my interpretation. You can check out other constitutional scholars for their interpretations as well is that the vice president becomes the immediate president. The president can counter that with a statement that, no, I'm alive. I can do this job. 
And if the vice president and his crew in the cabinet say, no, 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 we were serious within four days after the president has submitted his notification, then the vice president stays president throughout this entire period. Because this unless here is doing work. And I think people are getting that confused on Twitter and on social media, that the vice president can absolutely do this. And even if the president were to disagree, the vice president would stay in that position. Now, if the vice president in that four days submits his statement that, no, I'm serious about this, it goes to Congress. Thereupon, Congress shall decide the issue because you've got two competing statements assembling within 48 hours for that purpose, if not in session. And if the Congress, and they have three weeks to do this, determines by two-thirds votes of both houses that the president is, in fact, unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, if they wind up agreeing with the vice president, the vice president shall continue to discharge the same as acting president. Otherwise, the president shall resume the powers and duties of his office. So the biggest gray area here is if you have a fight, who is president of the United States? And I think the cleanest way to read this section is that it would be the vice president in the capacity of acting president. Again, you have this language shall continue doing work for you because the acting president would have been the one in office. But note that by the time you get to this congressional level, the default rule kind of shifts to the president going back into the office. You actually have to get two thirds of both houses to agree to the vice president taking over the presidency in order for that to continue to be the case. If that doesn't happen within that 21 day period, the president takes back over. Obviously, in the specific circumstance we are talking about right now with an inauguration to take place in about two weeks, a little less than that, all of these timeframes would suggest that Vice President Pence could in fact assert this with enough members of the cabinet and take over the presidency, but he won't. As we've seen in some of the articles that have come out after these statements, after these calls for the invocation of the 25th Amendment, Pence is said to oppose invoking 25th Amendment to strip Trump of his duties. This should probably be reported as this won't happen. Because as we said, it is a condition precedent, a requirement that the vice president be on board in order to invoke section four of the 25th Amendment. If he says he's not on board, there is no other circumstance that gets him on board, which is why we follow up with the second part of this video. And we have here on NPR, just in House Speaker Nancy Pelosi also says the 25th Amendment should be invoked to remove President Trump from office. And if it isn't, Congress may be prepared to move forward with impeachment. If you've been following this story on social media, you know that they have already prepared impeachment papers based on certain aspects of Trump's rhetoric in the last week. And again, we're not getting into the substance of that, whether or not you love Trump or you hate Trump. The importance is understanding how all of these constitutional metrics work together. And so all I've said so far is that in the 25th Amendment, you've got problems because the vice president doesn't want to do it. It's very difficult to actually claim that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. This was really intended for things like comas and not to put Charles Widmore in the presidency itself. But you do have a political process that I think most of us now in the year 2021 are pretty familiar with. I pulled up an article. President Donald Trump was impeached by the U.S. House on two charges in what feels like a decade ago, but was in fact just last year. We have been down impeachment road before. But just to remind you of how this all works, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, 
or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And as we've talked about in this space and in statutes and in contracts and elsewise, you've got a lot of ambiguity, especially in that last term. What is an other high crime and misdemeanor? It's up for the Congress to decide. Why? Because the House is the sole holder of the power of impeachment. What the House decides is a high crime and misdemeanor as a body is a high crime and misdemeanor. They can impeach and it is a political process. This is distinct from the 25th Amendment that is really talking about a qualification you have to hit. Unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office is distinct from establishing high crimes and misdemeanors, though you will note that at the end of the day, if the vice president and this group of people all agree and it gets down to Congress and they all agree, everything's turtles all the way down, right? It's all inherently political because we are a government of people and people are the ultimate deciders of what's going to happen in that government. That all said, why is impeachment important? Especially why is impeachment important going into the last 12 days of a presidency? Well, it's important because the Senate gets to decide it, gets the sole power to try impeachments. And if they convict on an impeachment, what happens? Well, you get removed from office. You are also disqualified to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States, which would include the office of the presidency. Obviously, what we are talking about right now is a very specific set of circumstances in which a single-term president could come back in four years. And so right now, I think a number of politicians are looking at the specific situation and saying, well, an impeachment, if we could get it, would prevent this particular individual from coming back in four or eight or 12 years or whatever you might think he might come back in and prevent him through the power of impeachment and more specifically conviction of holding an office of honor, trust, or profit in the United States. So when Nancy Pelosi comes out and says Congress may be prepared to move forward with impeachment, I would suggest believing them. It is, of course, a political process. The House is fully in democratic control, and they would be inclined to do it for the potential political advantages it would bring and the other kind of structural advantages it would bring. But there are other components in play, which brings us to the third and final portion of this video. And this is where things get really wacky. If you were looking at news articles this morning, you may have seen stories that suggest as follows. Trump asking aides and lawyers about self-pardon power. Now, if you aren't familiar with the pardon power, it is very broadly described in the U.S. Constitution. The president shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. Now, here I want to stop because I think it's important to clarify what that except in cases of impeachment mean. There are a lot of Twitter lawyers out there and a lot of social media lawyers, I'm sure, that seem to suggest that if what we are talking about is something that relates to an impeachment process, then the president can't pardon that individual for that. That isn't the case. What this means at the end of the day is that you can't, as president of the United States, pardon the impeachment. You can't get a civil officer out of the impeachment and conviction process. You can't get them out of the process that would remove them from office. You can't get them out of the process that would disqualify them from future office. It means absolutely nothing about your ability to pardon them against offenses generally. If you committed a crime and you are impeached for it, he can't stop you from being impeached and convicted and removed from office. He can stop the U.S. federal government from levying a criminal complaint against you for those crimes that you may have committed. 
which leads us to the important question posed by some of the news articles going out this morning. Can the president of the United States pardon himself? And again, a textualist reading this constitution that is just looking at the words might look at this and say, I don't really see any limitations on the use of this power here. He shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States. There's nothing inherently limiting in that language that without an additional interpretation would suggest that he can't do that. Now, I think intuitively a lot of us, especially those that are civics-minded and think about these issues and checks and balances and whatnot, say inherently, oh, a self-pardon is a problem, right? Because you could do all manner of mischief, then pardon yourself, and who wouldn't do that in that office that was so inclined? And if we have that as our baseline, we've created significant problems for Congress's ability to check the powers of the presidency and to do other protections for the United States, especially at the end of a term like this is, right? If you do this in the middle of the term, they can impeach and get you out of there as just acting wrongfully against the United States. If you do it right at the end, then you could have done anything behind closed doors and that presents its own problem. In fact, the Justice Department went out in 1974 in the midst of the whole Watergate scenario and said something very similar. Under the fundamental rule that no one may be a judge in his own case, the president cannot pardon himself. If, however, continuing, under the 25th Amendment we were just talking about, the president declared that he was temporarily unable to perform the duties of the office, the vice president would become acting president, as such could pardon the president, and thereafter the president could either resign or resume the duties of his office. Now, I have to be honest with you, I find this to be those angels on the head of a pin that is exactly pointless and exactly what we see from so many government opinions on these kinds of things. The functional difference between stepping aside, getting pardoned, stepping back in is nothing. So if this second 25th Amendment procedure is allowed, I really don't see it as protecting the checks and balances of the United States as they stand today. Now, what is the basis for this? It says, pursuant to Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment, is vested in the president. You might say it is vested fully in the president. This raises the question whether the president can pardon himself. Under the fundamental rule that no one may be a judge in his own case, it would seem that the question should be answered in the negative. Note all of that couching language, right? One thing that's probably important to say here is if you aren't familiar with this process, this is a memorandum opinion for the deputy attorney general from the Department of Justice. It doesn't bind anything. This is an executive branch memo talking about how they interpret this amendment and this provision of the Constitution. It has exactly the binding effect of my analysis here in virtual legality, which is to say none. However, it has been written in 1974. People have understood it to be out there since 1974. It has created contours around legal belief and how these executive branches and how the executive himself have operated since that time. So it does have a certain level of importance and the court might lend it that importance if for any reason, the longevity of its existence. And so it's not non-important but it doesn't bind the courts if they were to look at the pardon power and say, I don't see any of these limits. The fundamental rule that no one may be a judge in his own case, there is nothing fundamental about the presidential pardon power. It is unique 
It is one of a kind. It is not judgment in a court of law. It is not an Article Three judiciary power. It is a fully vested power in the president himself. And if the founders had wanted to write it differently, they would have. We'll get back to that in just a second. They also want to, in this memo, put aside a doctrine that I think could be important to some Supreme Court members if and when it came to it. They say the necessity doctrine would not appear applicable here. What is that doctrine? That doctrine deals with the situation in which the sole or all judges or officials who have jurisdiction to decide a case are disqualified because they belong to a class of persons who have some interest in the outcome of the litigation, thus depriving the citizen of a forum to have his case decided. Let's pretend, for instance, that an entire court was being sued and that court still had the only jurisdiction over the matter in question, if every judge would otherwise have to recuse themselves because of the conflict of interest, then there is a necessity doctrine that kicks in that says, look, we're going to just try to decide this fairly, but because we would all be disqualified, we're going to have to decide this case anyway, because the case needs to be decided. And if it needs to be appealed from there, okay, fine. This memo says the necessity doctrine is not implicated. Why? Well, they say in that situation, the disqualification rule is frequently relaxed to avoid a denial of justice. It is, however, extremely questionable whether that doctrine is pertinent where the deciding official himself would be directly and exclusively affected by his official act. In other words, the president pardoning himself is only ever going to affect the president. So we don't see how the necessity doctrine would come into play. I think certain members of the court, the Supreme Court, as it stands today in 2021, might find the necessity doctrine to kick in in a fashion that this memo doesn't. A different approach to the pardoning problem is the one that was described above, could be taken under section three of the 25th amendment. We didn't go over that, but that's where the president voluntarily steps aside. If the president declared that he was temporarily unable, the vice president would become acting president, could pardon him, and then the president could come back in. But understand, that doesn't really change anything, especially if we assume, as has been the case throughout United States modern politics, that the vice president is effectively in lockstep with the president. We saw that even in the description of the 25th Amendment at Cornell, which was talking about the situation in which you had Spiro Agnew and Ford and Nixon and everything else pardoning each other, moving around spots because the vice presidency and the presidency were connected in that fashion. So, What we've got now is a situation in which the sitting president of the United States is talking to his aides, potentially going to enact the pardon power over himself. And like any good constitutional question, like all of the questions posed by this particular video, we don't know what will happen, right? And you can see some of the holes in the Constitution. I could make proposals right now, the Constitution is difficult to amend, that says, okay, well, all right, maybe a self-pardon is okay, but if you self-pardon, you get the bad part of an impeachment conviction, right? That you are disqualified to enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. That would be an easy thing to do. We say, okay, fine, this isn't good looking. We don't like that you did this to self-pardon, but you can't hold office again. And that would get everybody to about where they want to be, but it doesn't exist in the constitution. And in fact, the Federalists way back in the day, and the founders are gonna be called into question here because if the president self-pardons himself and then gets sued anyway after the fact, then ultimately the question of whether that pardon is effective is going to rise up through the courts. And you're going to have a court say, no, it isn't. An appeal probably say, yes, it is. And ultimately you're going to get to the Supreme Court that is going to say whether or not this is okay. And they're going to turn to things like this 1974 memo. And they're going to turn to things, if you can believe it, like the 18th century writings of Alexander Hamilton, which I will try not to sing as part 
of this analysis. But he talked extensively about the pardon because the anti-federalists were upset about this thing. Mr. Hamilton said he is also to be authorized to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. Humanity and good policy conspire to dictate that the benign prerogative of pardoning should be as little as possible fettered or embarrassed. By the way, I want to write like Mr. Hamilton one day in my life. But he says basically that, look, the state requires a certain amount of severity. His next sentence is the criminal code of every country partakes so much of necessary severity that without an easy access to exceptions in favor of unfortunate guilt, justice would wear a countenance too sanguinary and cruel. I love this guy, right? And so when he's saying here is that we have to make rules, they have to be hard and fast, they have to be imposed on everybody equally, but there can be facts and circumstances on the ground that make it that we should have the ability to pardon. Pardoning should be as little as possible fettered or embarrassed. As the sense of responsibility is always strongest in proportion as it is undivided, it may be inferred that a single man would be most ready to attend to the force of those motives which might plead for a mitigation of the rigor of the law. Which, through a lot of words, is him saying that I want to avoid bodies politic. I want to avoid the House and the Senate having a say here. That you are going to get the most mercy and beneficence from a single power vested in a single person. Why? Well, he says the expediency of vesting the power of pardoning in the president has, if I mistake not, only been contested in relation to the crime of treason, which is at least surreptitiously in question in what is being discussed this week. This, it has been urged, ought to have depended upon the assent of one or both of the branches of the legislative body. I shall not deny that there are strong reasons to be assigned for requiring in this particular the concurrence of that body or of a part of it. Right? So the main argument of the anti-federalists here is you're even going to let him pardon treason? And treason is an offense against the government, not just the president. Congress should get a say. And he says, yeah, I shall not deny there are strong reasons to allow Congress to get a say, but not always. It is not to be doubted that a single man of prudence and good sense, and you can insert your own commentary here on that score, is better fitted in delicate conjectures to balance the motives which may plead for and against the remission of the punishment than any numerous body whatever. Again, he doubles up on this notion that a single person is better able to exhibit mercy. It deserves particular attention, and I think it deserves particular attention in this video, that treason will often be connected with seditions which embrace a large proportion of the community, as lately happened in Massachusetts. This is not in a vacuum. Hamilton is writing in an era where there were seditious acts and rebellions happening with fair amounts of regularity. In every such case, we might expect to see the representation of the people tainted with the same spirit, which had given birth to the offense. Said another way, I don't want this in Congress because some folks that are going to favor the rebels are going to be sitting in Congress. And when parties were pretty equally matched, the secret sympathy of the friends and favorers of the condemned person availing itself of the good nature and weakness of others might frequently bestow impunity where the terror of an example was necessary. I'm worried that rebellions will take over Congress. And Hamilton is apparently not worried that rebellions will primarily take over the executive. We'll get to that in another Federalist paper in just a second. On the other hand, he continues, when the sedition had proceeded from causes which had inflamed the resentments of the major party, they might often be found obstinate and inexorable, 
when policy demanded a conduct of forbearance and clemency. So this scenario is that the rebellions are actually to be beaten down by the Congress, that whoever is in control of the houses of Congress are so upset about this particular rebellion that in Hamilton's opinion, there isn't enough potential for clemency or mercy in that body politic. In seasons of insurrection or rebellion, there are often critical moments when a well-timed offer of pardon to the insurgents or rebels may restore the tranquility of the Commonwealth. The loss of a week, a day, an hour may sometimes be fatal. Furthermore, when talking about why a body should not have this power, it is questionable that the power could be delegated by law when we're talking about these things occasionally conferred on specific facts and circumstances, and further, that it would generally be impolitic beforehand to take any step, which would be required at a congressional level, which might hold out the prospect of impunity. If you actually have a congressional act of this type, it's more public, it's more specific, it's more generally focused, and a proceeding of this kind, out of the usual course, would be likely to be construed into an argument of timidity or of weakness and would have a tendency to embolden guilt. So Hamilton's main position on pardoning is that it needs to be in one person because even in areas of treason and sedition, you can't give it to the body politic because it's too easy for that rebellion, sedition, treason, whatever you want to call it, to either take over the body or to be so hated by the body that the proper notions of mercy and justice are not observed. At its fundamental hypothetical level, this argument would not deny the concept of a self-pardon. That in benefit of the United States, if the president, even if you disagreed with him entirely, were to find a situation in which he could restore the tranquility of the Commonwealth with such a pardon, in general, this logic would hold to that point. Which is to say that in general, the pardon power probably isn't limited as much as some constitutional scholars would like to see it so, and probably not as limited as the Justice Department came up with in 1974, even though I agree that this is a loophole and a problem in the Constitution itself because self-pardoning really doesn't have a protective principle against it. I talked about Hamilton also bringing up in a different Federalist paper some other defenses. We've been talking a lot on social media and just in general this week about whataboutism, comparing things to other things in order to make whatever you're talking about look better, right? Hamilton engages in it writ large here in this Federalist paper where he basically says, hey, my pardon power in the Constitution is totally fine. Why? Well, because the governor of New York may pardon in all cases, even in those of impeachment, except for treason and murder, is not the power of the governor in this article on a calculation of political consequences greater than that of the president? All conspiracies and plots against the government, which have not been matured into actual treason, may be screened from punishment of every kind by the interposition of the prerogative of pardoning. If a governor of New York, therefore, should be at the head of any such conspiracy until the design had been ripened into actual hostility, he could ensure his accomplices and adherents an entire impunity. A president of the Union, on the other hand, though he may even pardon treason when prosecuted in the ordinary course of law, could shelter no offender in any degree from the effects of impeachment and conviction. So Hamilton comes out here and says, look, stop fighting my pardon policy. I believe all these things about a single individual having the best chance of having mercy. I know that you're upset about the whole treason concept, but even in cases of treason, we don't want to give it to Congress and a single president is the best way. I will hear no more of it. And yet there are still limitations on the president's power before you start throwing yourselves out windows or anything like that. 
right? When we look at the pardon power, we talked about accepting cases of impeachment. What we didn't talk about is this notion of offenses against the United States. The president is the president of the United States as a federal joined body. He is not the executive of the individual states or of the cities or of the counties or anything else other than the federal government. So all he can pardon is offenses against the United States, even if he pardons himself, even if the Supreme Court ultimately upholds that, even if you hate all of that and all of that happens, he does not pardon himself from other offenses. Or as the Department of Justice says here in the application that you can make to the president to ask for his pardon, under the Constitution, only federal criminal convictions, such as those adjudicated in the United States District Courts, may be pardoned by the president. The president cannot pardon a state criminal offense. So even if you read all this stuff, even if you've gone through and you've read the 25th Amendment and all the impeachment clauses and you looked at all the impeachment cases and all of the background and now look at a potential for self-pardoning, there are legal limits even to that power, even as described as fulsomely as it is. And that might come in the form of Federalist Papers. That might come in the form of a Department of Justice memorandum from the 70s. It will most certainly come in the form of not being able to pardon anything that you don't have power over, even as the president of the United States. And we can be sure that this story and all of these various interesting constitutional questions will definitely continue into the future on whatever side of the argument you might find yourself in respect of this case. The only person we can be sure won't be facing 25th Amendment removal is this guy, but he's got his own stuff to deal with. So, this has been Virtual Legality for today. I hope you found this enlightening and informative and educational. I see so much misinformation on Twitter and on social media. I just want to get out there and in front of this stuff. And you can leave a comment to this video disagreeing with one or more of the phrases as I interpret them and the history of the various things because these things have not been adjudicated. There's so much law, and especially on constitutional questions, that has never found its way through the courts that all reasoned lawyers, constitutional scholars or otherwise, can give you is their interpretations of what they think would happen. And I think if there was a self-pardon, it would definitely get con be contested at every court level, probably wind up as a Supreme Court question. And from there, I don't know what would happen because the textualists are likely to give that self-pardon power and those on the opposite side of the fence are very unlikely to give it. So it would be a very interesting question indeed. If you like these conversations, not usually this politically heavy, but on business and law, pop culture, music, movies, television, and other, please do tell people that we're here. Like, subscribe, ring bells, share these videos with folks. We love having new folks discover the channel, have these discussions with us. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to this as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.